Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Phil Connell, a writer and director whose first feature, Jump Darling, stars Thomas Duplessis as Russell, a young drag performer at a personal and professional crossroads, abandoning his partner in Toronto to go out and see his grandmother in Prince Edward County and figure out what he wants and where he's going. It opened the Toronto Inside Out Film Festival last fall, and it's available on VOD today, with a bittersweet boost in visibility because it features the final screen performance of Cloris Leachman as Russell's grandmother. Phil picked a bigger splash, Luca Guadagnino's luxurious 2016 remake of Jacques Duret's 1969 drama La Piscine, a story of a very comfortable couple who've retreated from the world only to have that retreat disrupted by the arrival of her producer and former lover and his young daughter. Tilda Swinton and Matthias Schoenarts are the couple, a rock star resting her voice after career-saving surgery and her protective photographer partner. Rafe Fiennes and Dakota Johnson are the ex and the daughter, and all of them are on a collision course with one another. This is someone else's movie. I chose it because um, because I only just saw it recently, um, but I've been sort of going through like a, a bit of a Luca um, sort of, I've seen a lot of Luca recently. So I felt like, you know, I felt like it was just, um, I had enough to talk about, you know, like there was a, there was a wide enough range to dig into not just the, the film itself, but kind of like to stretch it into, you know, some of the kind of like thematic elements and and everything else that kind of, the threads that are transcending, you know, uh, certainly I am love and which I, which I watched many years ago, but watched again recently. Um, and, um, you know, I find his work to be kind of quite politically interesting. Um, so I find it, you know, I find it to be entertaining, but I also find there to be, you know, some, there's some interesting politics in his work and not necessarily like, you know, governmental politics, but just, you know, kind of viewpoints on the world that are kind of coming through his work that are interesting and sometimes in conflict um, with the worlds that he's painting. And so I just, I find that, I found that kind of interesting in addition to them just being generally, generally entertaining. I also recently watched his series on HBO, We Are Who We Are. I don't know if you've seen that. And, um, you know, Luca is just really interesting because he does tackle a lot of queer themes and, you know, his, his work is just dripping with sex and, um, but it's the, but I honestly, I think it's the, it's the kind of politics of the films that I find really interesting and how like, you know, that, that you see those threads. And I just, I really like when you can kind of, you can kind of feel like you're getting a sense of this, the, you know, a bit of the psyche of the filmmaker, you know, through, you know, through the work. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, certainly, the two—I mean, they were made almost back to back. A bigger splash and, and um, "Call Me by Your Name," and they're both about snakes in the garden, kind of. You know, these perfect idyllic worlds that are invaded by outsiders who don't necessarily mean uh, to destroy, but can't help but unbalance the comfort of everyone involved. And. Um, well, what struck me about a bigger splash just rewatching it the other night was that um, this is the movie. I mean, not only is there an, a snake in the garden daily, they tell us that they, they get these snakes all the time, um, but it just sort of wears its, um, uh, it wears its conflict openly in a way that his other films don't like, it's just, it's so happy to have Ray Fiennes running around being a chaos agent. And um, to the point where we're, we're sort of, we're being seduced by him as well. The film is already seduced by him and, and Gwen, you know, just, um, sorry, I'm, I'm going to butcher his name every time. Uh, yeah, I actually, not a native I, Italian speaker. I actually have trouble saying it. I'm never sure I'm saying it correctly. Yeah. I think it's Guadagnino. <laughs> Guadagnino. Yeah, Guadagnino. exactly. It's like, which consonants am I supposed to leave out? Yeah. Yeah. But he's encouraging, like he's already besotted with this performance. And I get it because who wouldn't be like what filmmaker would want to capture that. But yeah, uh, Fine's character performs the same function as Army Hammer's in Call Me By Your Name, which is to show up and take what he wants. And we later realize, oh, that that's not charming. That's actually horrible. I mean, Call Me By Your Name is, is a very delicate, um, beautiful depiction of what could be easily construed as child abuse as grooming mm-hmm. and, and pedophilia. I mean, it's not presented that way because we're watching this filtered memory 
of a relationship that's a coming of age story to the character, but objectively it's problematic. And the thing about a bigger splash, I think that makes it more okay. Although there is that revelation of a character's actual age um, is that it's a hedonistic film from the get go. And everybody's sort of already into it. That's not enough to excuse it, but it is a context that people are operating in within the world of the film that sort of makes it better. Mm, I guess. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. You know, like I, um, uh, call me by your name, which I, I saw when it came out and it's like less in my head. Like I, like I have a less like concrete, uh, memories of all the different pieces of it, obviously, but I actually read the book fairly recently, which I've read oh, yeah. after. Yeah. Um, but I remember, you know, obviously seeing call me by your name that, um, that those, that those feelings of like, Oh, this is a bit uncomfortable, you know, was something that I was feeling as well, but yeah, it really wasn't much talked about like that aspect of it. Like the, the, the love story aspect of it was seemingly very widely embraced. Um, and you know, the, the beauty of it and just the way it was, <clears throat> the way it was presented and, and sketched out that that aspect of it was, you know, the, the, the sort of uncomfortable age difference aspect just wasn't really explored. And I think a lot of that, frankly, is a testament to the strength of Chalamet's performance in that film. Like he's just so, uh, he's just got this incredible charisma this sexual charisma as well you know yeah. that i think is very you know that is just jumps off the screen for i think you know you know i would i you know i shouldn't speak for every viewer but i, I feel like that was very you know you know obviously launched him into the stratosphere for a reason and um but now thinking about a bigger splash you know, I, you're, you're talking about that aspect and, and the, the relationship between the two films, you know, the, the, the sort of the un, underage or, or, you know, the teenage, you know, um, the teenage female character who gets together in bigger splash in an implied way, I guess we never, in fact, I watched it again. And I was like, so are we supposed to think that they did or they yeah, didn't, or, you know, like they do leave it, they do leave it ambiguous. Um, but anyway, that part kind of went over my head, like, you know, in terms of like what you're talking about, like those two threads, I actually hadn't thought about those two threads between those two works in the, in the same way. Like what for me is the interesting kind of like, you know, political slash worldview dynamics that kind of go through some of his works is just this idea of like, um, like Ralph Fiennes character in, in, in bigger splash is kind of like, and you know, this, the, the metaphor of her having lost her voice, right. This, you know, the star that, you know, the, the thing that she monetizes, the thing that created her celebrity that did all, you know, the, the sort of the capitalistic element of her, 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 her participation in the, in the, in the uh, capitalist world, you know, has been taken away from her due to this surgery. Um, and, you know, she's sort of settled into this kind of, let's leave the side for the for a sec that it's decadent, but, let, you know, settled into kind of like a simpler existence, right? I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to live on the land. I'm going to enjoy food. I'm going to enjoy swimming. I'm going to enjoy sex. I'm going to, you know, you can describe that as hedonistic or, 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 or decadent. And, you know, I think that has to do with the context, but um and then you've got kind of Ralph Fiennes like swooping in with kind of the like, when are you going to get your voice back? When, you know, when are we going to, when are we going to get back on the train? And, you know, kind of this, almost the Americanism aspect, you know, um, you know, ownership, money, you know, forward momentum, all this kind of thing, you know, pace. Um, and, you know, those are themes more so that I see in I Am Love, right? Like the rejection of, establishment ways of thinking the rejection the rejection of wealth the rejection of um you know the rejection of gender you know um or, or, or traditional views of gender you know sure, all of yeah. that kind of happens and i am love and you know those ideas are much more sketched out in that film but i like i just find it interesting how 
you know, Ralph Fiennes character in Bigger Splash is this like charismatic kind of successful, you know, take what he can, you know, knows he's obscene and is okay with it, you know, and is also highly entertaining and enjoyable as a person, but also is a little bit disgusting, you know? And, yeah. and like, that's, a, that's kind of like, you know, I, I hate to say it, like, that's kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know. I just see this, this sort of, you know, and all of his films have Americans coming into Italy, you know, or all of his, yeah. you know, and, and we are, who we are is the same thing, except it's an American army base. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, no, um, I'm not, sadly it's, have not had the time to catch it's up. It's really interesting. Cause it's like that, that piece is like, um, set in Italy and it's set on an American army base. And it's about a bunch of army brats who like travel around the world with their parents who are, uh, soldiers, um, to these, you know, remote army bases in that case it's like you know so it's this queer kid and his mom who are and his mom's the new chloe Sevigny is the new colonel on the base like the you know the new head of the base or whatever um so that one kind of flips the script a little bit but like this whole notion like i sort of feel like there's this european versus american kind of worldview map thing that happens in his work oh i think so but i find that's that you know i just find that really interesting um yeah it's all over suspiria too i mean the, i'm not a fan of the film at all at all <laughs> i watched but, it this weekend in prep of uh, in, in preparation okay the swinton johnson reunion is kind of interesting and uh it yeah, is like right I'm, i am amazed that um the tilda swinton who is great in everything and has been all along actually does seem to really relish the work she does with Nino more than anybody else like she really comes to life in his films even when she's playing you know an 83 year old german man uh, in in Suspiria, there's a sense right. of play that that comes out in her and yeah that the one thing that the remake does that the original doesn't do is really kind of rip into the idea that it is a story of a foreigner it is an american in germany like uh, jessica harper's version of the character is just so traumatized and frightened from the very beginning that there's no sense of displacement or any of that stuff. And, and Guadagnino's movie by adding an hour to the running time, just adds all the other stuff in the beta mind, how things going on that there's a real sense of an American, not knowing how to act and what to do in mm-hmm. a foreign land, which wouldn't. And of course, you know, Fine's character has the opposite problem. He doesn't actually care about what he's doing. And I, I think he's supposed to be American, but with Fines, you can never really tell. There's a sense that he came over, you know, from, from London in the seventies and just never left. And is that's true. Yeah. Thoroughly Americanized, but he, right. like he is for all intents and purposes. He's, he is the ugly American in this world. Right. Paul, like Paul, I think is from the, the meet in New York. I think he's supposed to be from New York, but that doesn't really come through either. I, yeah, I had the same issue with that. I'm like, is he American? Like, I, you know, I can't, you know, it's like, yes, he's American. Like, I guess he's American, you know, I mean, in New York and, but yeah, I had the same issue. I wasn't, I wasn't really sure where we were supposed to think he was from, but again, I still, like, regardless of that, I still felt like the, the tension was there. Like you sort of feel like she just is done. You know, you, you feel like she is, you know, and her rejection of him is, you know, just as much a rejection of, you know, that, that life, um, as it is about, you know, as about, as about the, about the particular character, you know, and that, you know, she wants to retreat to, um, you know, retreat to kind of a simpler life. And, you know, you see, and, you know, and just like the obsession over food, like the way he shoots food and, you know, like that's like, I don't remember, I don't remember to what extent that was in Call Me By Your Name, but it was certainly in I Am Love, right? Like, you know, she just, these moments of just, you know, and obviously falling for a chef in that film, but like, um, well, the you know, I, scene in this film, obviously, is the yeah, one, right? But, yeah. Right. And like, and just like the, the, like the driving, the, the driving off into the hills, right? Like the way he kind of, you know, going up the dusty road, leave, leaving, leaving, you know, in, I guess, in I Am Love, leaving Milan behind and, 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 you know, driving up into the dusty hills and, you know, where it's like, I'm in a, out of the kind of, you know, prison of that, you know, crazy home um, that doesn't look more like an embassy than a home. Um, and into just kind of like a simple little cottage where you have, you know, you know, just the bare, just the bare necessities and yeah. kind of, um, and I, and, and, and I am love. What's interesting too, is like, I've never seen Tilda Swinton looks, you know, 
you know, she just looks like such a porcelain doll, like, you know, just the way they put, you know, and then, and, and, you know, as she sheds that, um, you know, at the end is just so compelling, you know, um, when you think of, especially when you put it in the, the context of today's like, you know, gender politics and, and, um, uh, kind of thing, you know, that, that just carries a lot of weight. You just kind of like, oh, okay. Like, you know, she's zipped up in these like beautiful, but tight, uncomfortable sort of things, you know, like presented Const- as this, yeah. yeah, this constructed ideal. And, you know, it's kind of like the, the breaking down of that. And she's just trying to get out of it. Although it was interesting that the house in I am love does resemble the embassy house does like kind of look not unlike the, um, the, the, the dance Academy in Suspiria. Like there's like, you know what I mean? Like there's a little bit of a fortress to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like they kind of like, they just, you know, those big kind of brownish, you know, framed oversized windows and just kind of, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's a reflect. He just has a reflexive dislike of that sort of architecture. I mean, there's the what's it supposed to be a chalet in um, in Call Me by Your Name? That's also just like a, a country estate. It's every everything is everything is appointed and and elaborate in his movies in a way that I guess the the whole idea that his that his obsession with rejecting materialism is only possible if you've already achieved a state of wealth where you can just detach. Which right. is obviously the the political conflict you're talking about. Yes, exactly. This, you know, uh, Marianne Lane has created a simpler life where she can just read all day and and ignore the world. But it's because she's literally beaten herself half to death in the pursuit of her yes. fame, right? Like she's destroyed her voice to be that famous, to be that successful. Yes. And so this is an escape, but it's also I think it's very clear in Swinton's performance um, that this is the only option she has left. Like if she keeps going, she'll die. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and like the, and the, and the, and certainly the moment at the end of the film in a bigger splash, like the, you know, the autograph moment is like, you know, just the, just that interesting moment of like, I'm, you know, I'm still, I'm still, um, I'm still facing this idea of being owned. You know what I mean? Like this, you know, she's trying to get out from being productized and being kind of owned, you know, and um, it's just very compelling. But yes, exactly. But that's exactly it, right? It's like. But it's also the price she pays to get away, right? Literally yes. to, to get away with everything. Um, not that she did anything, but, you know, if you if. I, I, I suppose we can because the movie's six years old. There's really no reason not to talk about the the mechanics of the ending. But yeah, yeah uh, Marianne's fame is what blinds other people to the possibility of culpability, right? Like it's, right. her fame is allowing her to live the life she wants on every level. And yeah, yeah, I think the the final scene of the film is a suggestion that it's also a cage that she's built for herself. But mm-hmm. it's a cage in which she gets to literally not go into prison. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an interesting contradiction that the film is fascinated by. And I, and I'm, I'm kind of curious because I somehow missed the first time through that. This is a remake. I'd never seen La Piscine. I, I wasn't aware that there was a, a I didn't know film. that either. I didn't, yeah. I, I, I didn't know that either. I read it. I read about that in the lead up to this call. Was it a remake or just it like is, a, a yeah. st- Oh, okay. Like I didn't. The, the beats are almost identical, which is really interesting. They're, they're the, the plot, points rather rather than the actual dramatic moments but you've yeah, seen no the, no i still oh, haven't i've, I've oh, done some okay. reading on it though i see um, and i'd love to see it because it sounds like it was completely different and yet exactly structurally the same and right i think i, I think i'm fascinated the most by why guanina would want to do this to remake it and i think it's i think the trick here was the film's obscure enough that you can get away with it that it doesn't need like finds has nothing to compete against and mm-hmm. uh, you know what i'm actually going to stop and look it up because i'll get it wrong otherwise uh but yeah it's a jacques de film from 1969 it was the first movie he made with alain delon but they'd made like nine films together yeah romy schneider maurice rene jane birkin plays the daughter wow the names are the same it's marianne harry penelope and jean paul but paul is right. definitely that guy um and yeah, Rumi Schneider and, and Tilda Swinton are galaxies apart. They're not even the same species. <laughs> um, 
but I think that's it. If you're if you're going to remake a film that not too many people remember, you break away. You make it as you make it as um, visually different as possible, and that's mm. his thing anyway. Just the sumptuous visuals and the mm-hmm. the whole uh, the embrace of of the wealth and privilege that surrounds everyone, and then you just let the actors figure it out themselves. I mean, Jane Birkin and Dakota Johnson are also radically different personalities. Um, but I think also you like, he knows that if he's got Ray Fiennes doing that, that Harry is completely different from the other one. As far as I can tell, uh, Maurice Renee's version of Harry was just a little more persuasive and, and direct rather than expansive and explosive the way that Fiennes is. Right. I don't feel like I've ever seen him, him in a performance quite like that. I, I like, you know, maybe I have, and I just don't remember it because my memory betrays me a lot of the time. I'm like, Oh yeah, I have seen that. Oh yeah, I guess that's true. But um, he was just so entertaining in a way that was, you know, you just couldn't, I mean, it was, he was so funny, you know, the scene where he just does, you know, where he goes off on the, on the music. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, his like you know elaine like kind of like dancing um on the on the cliff over there like it's just it's so funny and it's just it's great to watch and um you know you're just smiling in anticipation of it because it's just anyway i just I, you know he yeah you know and you and, and and what's great about it too is that like you know as a viewer, his like his charisma is and his wackiness is so infectious that you can like you can totally understand, you know, why the characters feel that way. You know, like you really are you're you're like you you feel like you're living the film in that sense, like in terms of Tilda Swinton's conflict with like, oh God, here he is. Oh my God, I'm not gonna be able to look away. Like, oh God, you know, am I gonna fall under the spell again? The the trick I think to Harry is that finds knows what he's doing. Like he, he is somehow, it's that thing that I've been talking about it a lot with Christopher Plummer lately, just because I've been talking about Christopher Plummer since he died. They both have a quality of allowing the audience to know how much fun they're having Mm. without breaking character. Mm. And like with fines, it comes up in stuff like the grand Budapest hotel where Mm. we're allowed to see the performance that he's giving in character. And here I don't know that Harry is performing. I think Harry is basically just that all the time. Mm-hmm. But Fines lets us see how much fun it is to play someone like that without worrying about what it would be like to actually exist in the real world. Because I, you know, I love watching Harry. I would not want to ever be in a room with him. He's <laughs> he is a disaster waiting to happen. He's, you know, he's just this untrammeled narcissist who has never. I mean, it's like you could you could dismiss this film and a lot of Guadagnino's work as white, as white privilege the movie, um, but I think with Harry we actually see the downside of it. Like he's he is always about to fall and he's not going to get what he wants from Marianne. So there's no way this movie ends well for him. And when it ultimately goes where it goes, that's still surprising, and that's interesting. Yeah, because it robs everybody else of the closure of having him just leave. You know, <laughs> Cause he won't leave until he gets what he wants and he's not going right. to get what he wants. And it's, it's the, you know, the irresistible object and the uh, irresistible force and immovable object issue. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and I think the film's even aware of that in a really otherly way, an otherworldly way, because by taking Marianne's voice away, Swinton is an object. Like she makes herself an object. And th- that turned out to be her decision, which is fascinating to me. I, I, I read something about that, but not enough to really fully grasp like it was like something like she agreed to do it if she wouldn't have to speak is that what i read yeah the original script and the original film has marianne with dialogue she is a speaking character and swinton said in an interview about a year later that she had run out of words in her own life she had reached a point where she just didn't think she had anything to say and so she didn't want to act on film because she wouldn't believe it herself Mm -hmm. and she said you know like i'll do this if i don't have to talk and guadagnino found a way for it to work crazy it is well, and it, I mean, it does work really well like she's i mean it's it is very captivating yeah like you just think it's like this you know for her to carry the whole thing in that manner and even when she does finally speak you know like when she speaks with the you know over the you know her raspy whatever yeah. it's just it's like 
it's like painful to watch, but also, you know, because you just assume that it would be painful, but also because I don't know. It's just, it's, 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 it's really good as a device. Yeah. Well, we're not used to seeing Tilda Swinton be graceless, right? Yeah. Like she is just, I mean, I've, I've interviewed her and she is an unearthly presence and something about her skin registers differently on camera or you just, right. it pulls in the light rather than reflects it. So you just constantly. What was she her. like? What was she like? Oh, she was great. It was a film where she played a scientist who makes her own clones, but they're weird and small. And I don't know how to describe it. Uh, it was a director friend of hers. It's someone else she'd made a number of movies with named uh, Lynn Hirschman Leeson. Mm. And I got two things out of that experience. One is that it is entirely possible that Tilda Swinton and David Bowie were the same person. And there's no way to prove that they aren't. <laughs> um, Techno Lust was the name of the film. It was two, oh, 2002. And um, ah, cool. the other thing is that she will do absolutely anything for her friends, for people right. she respects or admires, artists that she likes. Right. So she made this movie right at a point in time where she was rocketing up in terms of her fame. She mm. was being pushed for an Oscar nomination for The Deep End. And then she just went off and made this tiny little project with a friend of hers and gave her all. And it's it's a weird little movie, but she did not hold back or, or phone mm. anything in. And I get that with Guadagnino too, because they've made, is it four films together now? Or three and one is still in production. But I know Sounds she's working right. with him again. Yeah. So um, she's just, she's willing to do anything. But it, like the thing about the, the voice here tells me that she'll do it on her own terms every time, mm. which I find really fascinating. Mm. And um, and she is, yeah, she's intelligent and erudite and, and ethereal and everything you want her to be, or at least she was almost 20 years ago now. I thought it was more recent. Um, but I'm absolutely fascinated by what she chooses to do with her fame mm. and how she does it. She works with um, Mark Cousins on these traveling cinema projects all the time, or she did before the pandemic shut everything down, just bringing movies to rural communities in the United Kingdom just because she can, just because it's something he wants to do. And she's like, I can help you. I have, I'm famous and people will pay attention. Right. But it's not transactional as far right. as I can tell. Like she's just a genuinely good person and a patron mm. of the arts. I guess it comes from working with Derek Jarman in the early years and just, you know, coming up that way and mm. being, it's almost like the, the stage actors creed where you just, you're always in the ensemble, no matter what you're doing and you want right. to help and, and, Right. Bring visibility to things. But also on some level, I think with a bigger splash, like she knows that even though Ray finds his character, like even though Harry is the center of attention, Marianne can take up just as much space, especially if she doesn't talk and just uses her presence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, one of the things I was thinking about the, on, on, on my second viewing was just the, um, uh, the um, Dakota, Dakota Johnson's character, what's her name? Pen- Penelope. Um, and just like whether, you know, first of all, like the father daughter thing and whether we're supposed to buy that she's his daughter or not. I mean, obviously she brings it up with the paternity test thing, but you're not really sure if that's like just a, a you know, a provocation on her part, you know, or a legit or, you know, or a legitimate thought uh, or feeling. And you know, whether she's been brought there by Harry as like, you know, as an intentional act of disruption or just the circumstances that he describes, like, you you know what I mean? Like her whole character is kind of like, you're really uncertain as to, um, you really don't know fully whether, you know, what, why she's there and how she came to be there and what the truth is around her character at all. Yeah. And I just find that really interesting, which, you know, obviously at the end we learn that, you know, she's, she's, you know, been lying to them and, you know, and all that kind of stuff that, you know, so there is a, there is, you know, some manipulation there, but she's also 17. So it's like, well, you know, yeah. and she's just met her father, you know, so you can kind of, you can kind of slice it a variety of ways. Like you can say, no, like you just take it as it is straight up. Like she's 17, she's lying because she's pissed off and she doesn't really know what she wants and what she's doing in life. She's been dragged over to Italy by her father who she hardly knows, you know? And so, or it's like, no, 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 she's in on this whole thing. Um, and she's got her own agenda and she's pursuing that agenda. She doesn't seem particularly broken up when her father dies, but you know, so it's just, I found, I found like, you know, kind of, 
the way she's sketched out as a character to be very, very interesting because you're you're sort of left with a lot of questions, but not necessarily um, really any closure narratively, you know, in terms of what she what she means. Yeah, I think this time through, I'm pretty I came away pretty confident that the fact that she is playing her own agenda and withholding things from people means she is Harry's daughter because that's what he does. Like they're either she learned it from him in this really short time or it's innate and he's just passed that along. It makes perfect sense that she would do what she does and hide what she hides. Um, Maybe the age thing. I mean, she keeps insisting she's 22. So people will take her seriously. And that is something a teenager would do. And and the other thing, like Johnson was 26, I think when she made the film. So Mm -hmm. she's playing 10 years younger, which is harder to swallow. Yeah. But I guess if you came from Harry Hawks, you probably would age at a terrifying rate as well. Like there's just the sense that like he's wearing on her and and leeching from her in a vampiric sort of way. It kind of plays into the way Johnson presents herself and the way that the camera presents her. I mean, the movie is in love with everyone. The sensualism that uh, Gordon, you know, brings to every project where you know, the surfaces are the most interesting thing and the, the granite and the marble and the, and the textures of the food. But then also he sees his actors as objects in the same way mm-hmm. to be, you know, pushed in on and, and examined and, and reveled in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think Johnson's a really interesting actor. Um, I know she gets a, a rough ride because of the 50 shades movies, but the more I learn about her and oh, they're terrible. (laughs) They really are. But the more I learn about uh, Dakota Johnson and Jamie Dornan, it's very clear that they just did them because it looked like it would be easy. Mm. And, you know, they're, again, they're, those are very um, stylish, sensualized, you know, I would, you do one of those movies and keep your wardrobe. It's probably worth it. Yeah. Right. 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 But she's like, she's responding to something here. Like she's up to, she's, just the fact that she's not being blown off the screen by three of the greatest actors mm-hmm. of their respective generations is mm-hmm. kind of impressive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, she's, 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 she's very captivating in the role. And, um, but she also, yeah. Like, the, like I also just find how she's got like this, you know, there's like a simmering anger, mm. you know, there's a simmering anger in that character. And again, like you can chalk that up to being a teenager. Um, although 17, you know, I don't know, 17, often you know that the angry stage is that's to me that to me the angry stage is a little earlier than that but um but maybe that's just my own experience um you know so i you know i just again like uh i just you know her character stays with me a lot because of how they kind of unleash it right at the end you know how they unleash you know by unleashing those facts you're kind of like left with like what was her participation in this, you know, and what are we to take from that? Um, you know, it's kind of, it's just like, it punctuates the whole thing in yeah. such a way as to think, you know, that like, it sort of feels like there's, there's being weight lent to it, but you're not really sure how to process the weight. At least that was for me, you know, or if yeah. it's just like, where it was just like, Oh, this is interesting. You know, we're giving, we're, we're closing the loop on her narrative, you know, and there isn't a lot of meaning to it. I'm not sure. Um, well, with the transactional nature of Harry, too, there's the possibility that, I mean, it seems pretty obvious that he's not just there to get Marianne back to work. He wants her. He wants to resume his position as her lover, too, and mm-hmm, take over from mm-hmm. Paul because he very, you know, grandly let Paul meet her and, and made it possible for that relationship to happen after he and Marianne broke up. And so in that case, you can interpret that Penn is there for Paul, right? Like mm-hmm. as a distraction or as a consolation prize, which right, like that he's his brought, exactly, yeah, like he's Ugh. brought her there as he's brought her as a exactly, he's brought her to be like the the, the, the sort of the uh, the forbidden fruit or whatever you know to be, or the unforbidden fruit. Yeah, um, is know, he giving her to Paul or is he putting her in Paul's way as a temptation to discredit him? It, it's it's ambiguous because with Harry it could be all of it. Like it, he he offers. Like, again, it's Fine's performance, but the mania that this man has gives me the sense that he was considering all of these things in the moment, and it's not even clear what his original plan was, or if he just thought, oh, I'll bring her, and that was where it stopped for him. Right, right, right. 
And I go, I'm not fucking my daughters. <laughs> I said, well, that a- I believe. <laughs> Yeah, no, me too. But it's just so funny. You're obscene. Of course, everybody's obscene, which, you know, for me, that was like the, you know, big line in the movie, like um, for the, you know, in terms of the like the grander picture we were talking about earlier in terms of like the politics, right? Like this, this idea of obscenity and and taking and and what we can get and amassing and, um, you know, whether that's, whether that's, you know, celebrity or, or, or decadence or, or, or lovers or whatever. But like, to me, that was very telling in terms of, you know, some of the, you know, some of the ideas he was exploring or the tensions he personally has about, you know, like, you know, capitalism as a means to an end so that you can like, you know, it just sort of like, you know, uh, you know, living in Italy, you know, I, it's just a very interesting kind of, um, uh notion like of obscenity and what obscenity is you know yeah and how people determine what obscenity is on their own personal scales yeah yeah you mentioned that i wanted to there was one thing i wanted to ask you about because it it struck me the first time i watched it and struck me it struck me again when i watched it again i don't remember seeing this in his other work but the way he did a lot of these um and it seemed to be linked to Harry's character I think like at least in my head that's what was happening but he had these like really abrupt uh he would have these really abrupt push-ins like you know uh, you know sort of steady cam push-ins on objects mm-hmm. you know and you see the first one in the film is like um on the uh on the arrival screen in the airport oh yeah yeah like we're racing to look at it but the yeah, characters race- haven't physically moved yeah, exactly. And, and, and it shows up a few other times in the film, like once on like the wallet and the belt and stuff as he's taking it off before he goes into the pool, once on Tilda Swinton's back. And then there's another one. Anyway, and it just, I, I just, they struck me as kind of odd, but at the yeah. same time, because there was, because it, it repeated in a variety of places throughout the film, it was, there was obviously an intention to it. It wasn't just like, Oh, we, we rushed that shot. Um, and, um, but I don't remember seeing that in any of his other work. And so I wasn't sure if that was meant to convey, like, it did seem like it was always when something to do with Harry, like Harry was in the scene or we were anticipating Harry coming into the scene or it was Harry's things or whatever. And so I wasn't, the way I interpreted it was, um, you know, sort of this, the frenetic energy that he represents and, and kind of like, Oh, we're trying to get away from the chaos machine, Yeah, you know, and here comes the chaos. But, but again, I wasn't, you know, and I know you're, you're a bit of a scholar on these things. If you had <laughs> noticed like, that that had been a thing that he does in other films. And I, I don't think you're, I, no, I think you're right. I don't think he does. Right. And I was wondering in this case, whether it was supposed to be things that would later become important to the investigation, but I don't think that's mm. it either. I think, right. it, yeah, just because I was trying to think of, is it like we're watching a flash of memory as it happens of like, oh, that's when he, you know, like, pr- this is proof of something, but I don't right. know, watching it a second time, I don't know that that's true. Yeah, it feels, they feel a bit random, like, like, no, like random in terms of the, the, the things that they're doing it on and the mm-hmm. times that they're doing it, um, but not random as a device, but but yeah, so I was just a bit confused by it, but I thought maybe it was a stylistic thing. Yeah. But I remember I Am Love being much more plodding generally as a, a, a as a film. Well, his uh, pacing is usually much, much more sedate. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that that was my memory, but I, I wasn't, you know, and same, yeah, same with uh, Suspiria even. Yeah, I mean, Suspiria is a film that would benefit from that kind of like a shock cut <laughs> or, or a, a zoom. Those, those would be accommodated within the genre, but right. yeah, no, I don't think he does, Yeah, actually. A lot of slow zooms, slow, deliberate tracking. Yeah. I think there was some frenetic stuff in the kind of in the, in the, in the towards the end of Suspiria when all the, when all the crazy stuff. Is oh, happening. when people are exploding. Yeah. Yes, That's exactly. I think there was some there, but that, probably kind of stands apart <laughs> <laughs> yeah in terms of its own thing yeah yeah no i mean i mean maybe it is maybe there's just one that was cut that would have made it all make sense and right just rolled past it somehow right right but there's also you know like back to the kind of like the political thing i also thought like what's interesting is like the two different um uh harry and paul's characters and just kind of like the kind of like different versions of masculinity that they represent as mm-hmm. well, 
is something that he kind of, that kind of is interesting. Um, you know, I guess more in terms of how they live their life. I mean, they're both, we don't really, we don't really totally get the sense that like, there's, you know, a caregiving aspect to Paul. Like there's a real, like there, there's this, you know, this sort of, they look after each other, um, you know, in like in the, in a more human way, as opposed to in a like bolster their own bolster each other's role in the world sort of way, which seems yeah. like more of the role that, you know, the kind of relationship that she and Harry had, right. And, and drugs and, you know, amplifying and amplifying and um, like, you know, sort of amplifying each other, you know? And so I think that's interesting too, you know, like the fact that he's had, you know, mental health crisis and, you know, and, and, and that, that, you know, that that's not, that's from the, from the filmmaker's point of view, that is not necessarily, um, that makes him attractive to Tillisman. Like, you know, that these, this vulnerability, um, that they both have by virtue of ailments, you know, um, over time is actually like something that's drawing the two of them together. So I think that is, again, kind of plays into, you know, some of the ideas that maybe he struggles with, yeah, as a, a the, filmmaker that you see in some of the other movies. Um, the romance of someone who's rebuilt themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And just also like the, the nature of how the relationship itself is built. Like, you know, it's like, Oh, we're looking after each other as opposed to um, benefiting from each other. Yeah. Well, Paul is absolutely a nurturer and Harry's a parasite. Yeah. It's not, it's <laughs> not like, it's not even a symbiotic relationship. It's right. He takes and maybe right. he helps in production to make Marianne better, but she's already pretty great. Right. So yeah, he's just right. there to resume that role and Paul can see right through him. Right. Although I had a, a friend of mine who's kind of a bit of a cinephile and she, one of her struggles with the bigger splash was that she had trouble buying uh, Tilda Swinton as the pop star. You know, she, she had trouble, oh, yeah. which, which kind of escaped me. Like, you know, I was just so captivated by the tale and, you know, and all the things about the movie, but upon second, I'd heard that after I watched it the first time. And then upon second watch, I was, you know, more scrutinizing that, that like, you know, that, that does kind of fade into the background or that he doesn't invest too much um, in, in convincing you that she's one of the greatest pop stars of our time. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't, you know, other than the, obviously the opening scene on stage and then a little bit in the studio and the studio stuff doesn't totally convince you of that. Yeah. It doesn't um, line up with what the crowd is expecting somehow. Right? No, like, you know, like it's like, you're not like seeing this grand production of what you can imagine as a pop song. That's going to take the world by storm in that session at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. at best you're seeing like, you know, sort of like a Joni Mitchell kind of like session of, you know, a respected artist doing her thing, you know? Yeah. So I, it's like mid period um, Patty Smith or something. Yeah, exactly. And so that's kind of interesting that, I mean, a testament to him as a filmmaker that you can, you know, in terms of the way he does it, that at least for me anyway, I kind of totally overlooked that, you know, I totally bought into that, like without questioning it, but I found it, I found it interesting that, you know, this particular friend, that was something that dogged her yeah, through, yeah. throughout, um, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, it's. I wonder if it's supposed to be that she's just reinventing herself on a Bowie scale because we see her as a glam rocker, kind of, even though she kind doesn't of. actually sing a note when she's doing it, mm -hmm. and then scale down to whatever else she's supposed to be doing in the studio. But I think, ultimately, it's the way other people regard her that sells it. Like there's that early scene at the restaurant where yeah, the the through the four diners just immediately surrender their table to her and hope that she knows who that like hope that she looks at them for a second mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because she is that famous. Mm -hmm. And I guess too, there's the sense that like her. Who also happens to be the police guy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I was trying to think about the villa and if there are any signs of her career, but there really aren't. There's just no, there's no, there are no posters. There are no records. There's just a sense of money, mm -hmm. which comes from success. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, she's contrasted too, like just by by virtue of the way the movie works, the the refugees elsewhere on the island, right, provide an immediate break that she doesn't, they're not registering this humanitarian crisis that's happening because they're, I mean, they're literally on a hill above it, but they're also completely detached from it. Mm -hmm. The The more time 
you know, the, the more time they have to do nothing in, the more you're aware of that disparity in the course mm-hmm. of the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I read something that was, you know, that, 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 that by, I read some criticism of the film. They, they, some criticism was like bringing that in, but like bringing it in, in as such a kind of like, it was, it was brought in, but it was really, you know, really, a really kind of a backdrop, although they kind of, they bring it more significance at the end when they, you know, when they essentially blame, um, blame the migrants for, you know, you know, is this an escape route to the, as escape route to, um, guilt or, uh, yeah. discovery or whatever. We're dealing with seven other bodies today, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and the notion that anybody could have come up the, oh, you know, the right, of course, path, yeah. yeah, anybody could have done this, you know, kind of, or could have had a role, uh, if there was a struggle in the pool, it was probably, you know, someone who was coming to rob us or whatever, you know? Right. Um, so it was interesting, you know, again, kind of paying lip service to the, you know, the notion of blaming migrants, you know, so there was an aware, there's an awareness of the, like, you know, the decadence mm-hmm. there, but it doesn't, it only goes so far. Right. Um, well, I can which, see that. Uh, which, which, which was some criticism I read, but again, wasn't obvious to me necessarily as I watched it, that that was, um, probably because I'm watching it from a place of white privilege. More well, than, yeah, but um, also but, so much of, so much of Gordon Nuno's aesthetic is about ignoring reality, right? Like mm-hmm. just, just, just bask in the thing that you're seeing and, and feel the love and feel the romance and feel the opulence. Um, his characters get to question it, but the movies almost never do, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. interesting. I think, like, mm-hmm. I think it's very clearly a comment on, on Marianne's privilege and stardom at the end that she's, that that's what lets her off the hook. Yeah. But the film still admires it in a mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is uncomfortable. And I don't it know is if uncomfortable. that's, yeah, I don't know if that's intentional actually either. Yeah. I mean, there's, I find that there's a lot of movies that do that. Like when there's, you know, when there's like a, a, a significant comment on, you know, significant political comment on, on, the way of the world, but at the same time, the, 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 the piece of work that's commenting on it is also perpetuating it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, I like that, you know, an example for me, that's not this that comes to mind is like the big short. Sure. Yeah. You know, like comes to mind is like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this like satirical takedown of, you know, of kind of like the, the, the world of big finance and, and, but at the same time, the device of, um, I forget the character the, uh, or the actor. Is it oh, um, Margot Robbie in the top? Yeah, it's Margot Robbie. Um, I, I thought it was Margot Robbie, but yeah, exactly. And then we're using this device, which is like satirical, but at the same time, still to me is perpetuating the whole thing. You know what I mean? The whole style of it, the whole style of the film still has that like wall street male vibe to it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so no, I, just, I do, yeah. Um, so I find that interesting. So, you know, thinking about this work wasn't as obvious to me in this work because I guess I'm more into this than I am into the Wall, big Wall Street <laughs> finance vibe, which I really don't identify with. But, you know, the idea of, you know, sitting by a pool in a villa in Italy and, you know, eating, you know, cheese curds, like, yeah, that's pretty attractive. So I was less aware of the sort of like the, the takedown or like the kind of the negative energy of that. But the, what's also interesting about bigger splashes, there isn't nearly as much, you know, it's just the story, I guess, but you know, there's, there's kind of queer elements in, in most of his other work that don't, don't exist really here at all. Yeah. This is a pretty straight story. And I wonder if that's because it originated somewhere else. Like yeah. you just there and there, and the concept is so hermetic that there's no way to introduce that aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And I wonder if like, you know, I know this is part of a series, you know, what he, this oh, desire yeah. series or whatever. Right. So if, you know, the, the sort of like the, the very obvious connective tissue between the three in terms of like the pools and the, you know, the, you know, like the, the dancing in the squares, the American coming into Italy, you know, like, I guess that doesn't happen in I am love, but like, I'm, I'm wondering if like that will continue, you know, Suspiria is obviously a, a bit different than all of those things, but I wonder if that will continue in some of his work. Oh, I'm or sure. If that, or if he, yeah. or if he, or if that's captured very much by this desire series. You know I, mean? I mean, nothing about his work suggests that the next one won't be the same. Like he's, 
I, and I don't mean, I don't even mean that as a negative. It's just like, I, right. I suppose I could if I was being snarky, but, but yeah, I think he is a, he is someone who is an aesthetic filmmaker who, yeah. who like all of his films are about desire. Even Suspiria on some level is about the desire of the, the witches for this young woman. Right. And, you know, I mean, you can, you can reduce it to want, but his whole style is to, um, you know, super asceticize whatever it is he's presenting. Yeah. So I don't think that just stops because his films aren't overtly about desire. And also calling something a desire trilogy is, I, I, it's pretty simplistic in terms of boiling down well, what these three films are. But well, just the fact true. that, he, you know, that's how he's been referring to them is kind of, you know, it's like Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy that mm. which are three films where the world ends from a horror filmmaker who always makes movies where the world ends. It's yeah. It's kind of a it's it's a simultaneously a leap and no leap at all. It's true. I guess but because there is a lot of repetition, not just like stylistically but repetition like narratively. Thematically too, yeah. Yeah, like that 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 in that sense I wonder if that's you know, in his mind, what's being ca- captured by, you know, this kind of categorization of the three, you know, like the, the, the death in the pool, but like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, you don't, and that's not in call me by your name, but there's certainly a lot of pools and a lot of water and a lot of sex and pools and all this kind of stuff that, you know, in the town square and the da, 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 you know, we are who we are, which is, you know, is coming of age, you know, is a coming of age tale. So it's kids. I mean, there, there are adults and it's, um, much more coming of age queer story, much more sort of, um, and, you know, and, and it's set in an army base in Italy. So it does escape, actually, it does, it does escape some of these things. Like it's not, you know, as I recall anyway, romancing food in the same way, like they're, you know, it's very, it's about America and Italy, right? So it's like the subculture of, um, the mini army base or the mini grocery store on an army base and the little cafeteria and like this kind of little weird world of kind of eye-opening to me anyway, like the idea of what a, what an actual remote American army base looks like in another country, but they basically create like a little version of America. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, at least according to this series. Right. Um, and so in that sense, like it, it does abandon some of these things. Um, now it's a series, you know, um, so that kind of made me wonder if like this desire series was, you know, him trying to wrap a bow around a, a bunch of things that were going to feel similar. Um, and that, yeah. you know, that he was going to maybe move on from that um, in some way. Um, but I actually, we are, who we are. I really enjoyed it was, it's really and Chloe Sevigny is the, in it and she's so interesting and um so she's such a yeah she's kind of i mean interesting like you know she's interesting to someone to kind of think about next to tilda swinton because she kind of has like there's some similarities there and kind of like kind of like her sort of how she kind of is like naturally just kind of a queer person you know and 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 kind of falls outside of kind of like binary definitions of things um and uh, it's interesting that he cast her in 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 the role that he cast her in and we are we are it's not it's, she's she's not she's a, a big force but she's you know, it's much more of a kind of ensemble kind of cast so um but yeah interesting how interesting how you he keeps the the american italian thing going but um but in a very like kind of flips the script a bit okay i'll have to take a look at yeah it. And I've been trying to figure out throughout how to line this up with either a bigger splash or or Guadagnino's own work, his whole body of work with with what you do in Jump Darling. And I'm right. I'm kind of fascinated by the fact that there isn't a lot of connective tissue. I mean, there right. in a way, Jump Darling is a coming of age story or a coming of self story. Yeah. But of somebody who's in his what, late twenties? Yeah. He's th- yeah, it's, it's th- we say he's thirty-one. Yeah. Right. So um, I think the, yeah, I think for me, you know, like I, I, you know, I would say that there's uh, a lot of connective tissue, but if you're like kind of asking me why, um, you know, why I would have chosen to speak about it on the backs of, you know, going through a release of this film, I guess, you know, I did think about, I did think about, like I said, choosing, you can count on me, which was very influential and we could easily talk about, 
you know, probably easily talk about much more connective tissue between um, a film like that and Jump mm. Darling, you know, the small town, um, two characters coming together, you know, in a crisis, the backstory, you know, blah, 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 kind of how they come together and leave each other. Um, but I guess, I guess the reason, you know, why I was taken by this film um, and, you know, why some of his, his work does inspire me is, like I said, some of the, the exploration of the tension of different lives. So like, you know, like Russell's story in, in Jump Darling is very much a, a, for me anyway, the intention for me is like, it's kind of like choosing life as an artist kind of story. Um, and the tensions, the tensions that exist in that, um, you know, the sort of like what you have to give up, you know, traditional lifestyles versus not, and kind of like, you know, what the, what the ex-boyfriend represents, you know, he's like the downtown lawyer, the downtown lawyer gay versus the drag queen gay. And, you know, kind of this, what kind of life do you want? Mm-hmm. What Assimilation kind of versus... Yeah. And, and yeah, the assimilation idea, but also just like, what kind of life do I want to lead and what's that going to mean? You know, and like, what are my values and are those in conflict with, you know, what I'm doing or, or not, you know, and how, and, or how do I align what I'm doing with my values Um, and the struggle and the struggle with that. And so to me, um, if I were to draw any kind of connective tissue between this conversation and the bigger splash and, you know, the things that interest me and some of the things that are in jump darling, it would be those things, you know, it would be, it would be the sort of inside baseball aspects of the kind of queer story going on the jump darling, the end of life story, the family drama thing. No, not really. That doesn't, that doesn't really connect. And, you know, and I was just family, you know, family, but I am, a you know, I am sort of uh, interested in the sort of the, um, the sort of politics of films and kind of what they, you know, what they say about how we choose to live our lives and, and what that says about the people making them and the ideas that are explored around there. And so, um, you know, I don't pay a ton attention to that in my movie. There's not a ton of room for that. Like the beating heart of the film is really the relationship between Margaret and Russell. And, you know, mm-hmm. so I think for, um, for most people, that's kind of the thing that they're going to, they're really going to feel and take away, which is great. I, I hope. Um, but um, for me, a lot of Russell's narrative is tied to these choices around, you know, can I deal with people's judgment? Does that matter to me? You know, am I going to be poor? Um, could I have a simpler life? Do I want a simpler life? Those kind of things. Yeah. And I think too, that there's something about Jump Darling that rejects the idea of the um, the generational conflict that usually shows up in films like this, I mm. guess is one way to put it in that everyone understands everyone else and the objections aren't about personality. It's just about viability. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, his grandmother is unfailingly supportive. His mom is not unsupportive, but just concerned, right? Like she wants to make sure he'll he'll be okay. And that's, that's something that does not often get the kind of texture that you gave it. It's mm. usually just like one line of dialogue about how someone did never got along with their dad or that's it. And it's the character doesn't even appear, right? Like it's all right. backstory. And here making that an active part of it where every character in the movie wants the best for every other character. That's really interesting. And that's not something you see very often. So I was really gratified to see that. And it's, I kind of, I was trying to figure out if I could hammer it together into Michael Stuhlberg and Call Me By Your Name, who spends the entire film just watching and holding back on what it is that he can tell his son that will help, but right. he has to wait until his son is destroyed before he can rebuild him with that story. Right, right. And that's tragic in its own way. And then we have what Linda Cash does in in Jump Darling, which is just watch from the sidelines, knowing like deep in her heart that it's not going to go the way he wants it to and still hoping he'll be happy doing it. That's like, that's a really lovely grace note that I was not expecting. Mm, that's so interesting that uh, I haven't heard a lot of people kind of uh, hit on, hit on those aspects. So it's <laughs> nice. It's nice to hear that. And so, you know, in, in many ways I, I have never even really framed them quite that way. It was, it was, it was important for me 
to not like I, I wasn't interested in 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 sort of like I wanted to make sure I steered clear of any kind of coming out sort of story kind of situation and I and so I wasn't really interested in having characters who were non-accepting in the traditional way but what mm -hmm. I but you do have there is a coming out story aspect in terms of the passion and interest in drag right it's like you know he hides that from his family so it's like oh it's okay that I'm it's okay that I'm I'm you know I'm a gay I'm gay and I'm in this you know relationship with this you know successful you know lawyer and um, but I'm not sure it's okay if I'm going to be that gay, you know, it's the, the kind of the, this kind of exploration of a little bit of like the politics of how gay is too gay. And, you know, like, do you, like you said, the assimilation versus, you know, kind of like the, the, um, the, um, the more performative, you know, the more, yeah. Like, you know, do I, you know, do I be a, am I a heteronormative gay or am I a, uh, like, am I a, um, am I a queer uh, am I a queer kind of crusader? You know, am I, right. am I, am I, am I fighting on the edge, you know, on the fringe for, you know, to, to kind of move things forward. Um, and, um, you know, which, which is, I think something that I didn't necessarily set out to do, but it's just, you know, one of the own tension, my own tensions, my own life that I think came through, you know, in the work, you know, um, and, uh, and again, maybe that's why I was interested in bigger splash because you see, like that idea of like, he's commenting on and sort of questioning, you know, a lot of kind of capitalistic kind of pursuits and values while at the same time, like taking comfort in the benefits of them, you know? And so, um, you know, so I, again, like, I think that's what, uh, but it's interesting what you said about like uh, Linda Cash's character with Ian sort of, um, knowing that he feeling feeling in her heart that he won't be successful i i haven't heard that before um I think so it, just, it comes through in the performance the concern that she expresses like it's coming from a a real place of of pain right like it felt like she's she's genuinely worried she's not pressuring him yeah right like it doesn't feel artificial it feels like a genuine worry yeah like her her uh yes her instinct is to um, and her desire is to be supportive and to, and to be loving, but yes, she has deep concerns about what that will mean for his future. Um, and, and, uh, uh, you know, and again, that probably comes very much from, you know, my life and, you know, my mother in many ways is like that, you know, kind of like, you know, you know, the, the and, and again, with respect to, you know, creative life and and choosing a creative life um you know kind of like absolutely supportive but like boy wouldn't it just be easier if you did this other thing you know which which then that is obviously not a new idea like, there's nothing new and um particularly special about that notion you see that kind of idea creep up in any story uh, or, or i shouldn't say any story but lots of stories that sure, yeah. about artists you know becoming artists you know a, families who families or people in their lives that, you know, either don't think they'll be successful or, or, or wonder, you know, what that will mean for their life and, um, you know, and, and make their life more difficult um, and all that kind of stuff. But you kind of wrap that into um, a queer lens and you've kind of got like a, you've kind of got like a, a double whammy, right. Cause it's like, you know, it's like, that's going to be a difficult life and that's going to be a difficult life. And you put two difficult lives together and, you know, you've made it extra hard for yourself, you know, kind of thing. And so I think that's where, uh, so I guess that's why I wanted to take any kind of, I wasn't interested in having a family that wasn't supportive of his, you know, sexuality, because to me, it muddied the waters. My thanks to Phil Connell, whose first feature, Jump Darling, is now available on VOD platforms across North America. Thanks also to Angie Power. She knows what she did. You can find Phil on Twitter at loglady78, all one word, L-O-G-L-A-D-Y, and the numerals 7 and 8. And you can find a bigger splash on DVD from Elevation Pictures in Canada and from 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment in the United States. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play. And in Canada, it's streaming for free on Tubi. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days and writing the weekly Now Streaming newsletter, to which you can subscribe at NowToronto.substack.com. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. 
Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay inside, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.